Okay, everybody, it's Movie Geeks United. Before we get started with tonight's show, which, of course, is the uh, monthly Blu-ray coverage we provide, courtesy of Adam, uh, I want to make an announcement to all of you people out there clamoring for it, all of our loyal listeners. Our summer of 1994 show will air next week. So we'll be devoting a full three hours to uh, the Inkwell or, you know, whatever summer movie <laughs> you want to hear about. Yeah, blown away. Uh, <laughs> All those great classics. <laughs> oh, gosh. I remember seeing him blown away in the theater during a screening. Yeah. Uh, okay. <clears throat> well, Color of Adam, Night. what's up? <laughs> oh, shut up. Oh, Color of Night, yeah. I tried to re- rewatch some of that the other day. It was on cable. Yeah. And mm-hmm. uh, some people really dig it. Yeah. Uh, I don't know quite why. But. Um, hi, hi, hi. Yeah. That's, uh, yeah you get to I'll get to see Bruce Willis' it... penis in that movie. Mm hmm. Yes. Die Hard yeah, Indeed. Was... <laughs> 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 you know, that's one of my favorite moments ever was when. Um, uh, on any of these award shows was when Ricky Gervais hosted that, uh, when he roasted everybody that year, and he pissed everybody off, and he, when he, his intro to Bruce Willis, he said, you know I'm from such great, well-remembered classics as Mercury Rising and Color of Night. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, my God, that was the best. <laughs> anyway. Well, he's he's added a lot to that list since. since that award yeah, show. he has. Yeah. All right. right. So what are we talking about? We're talking about August Blu-rays, right? We are, yes. We are talking about August Blu-rays. Is this a good Blu-ray batch of movies? Uh, yeah, there's um seems like there's been not quite as many releases this month. Seems like it's slowed down a little bit. Uh, at least I haven't gotten as many review titles. But uh, nevertheless, there's some interesting things amongst them and... Uh, some things that people have been waiting for on the high-definition format that just now arriving for the first time ever. And one of those is uh, the reflecting skin. We'll start with that. From 1990 with uh, Viggo Mortensen, which is uh, a very interesting movie. I had heard of it. It's one of these well-regarded films that crops up in conversation from time to time on various podcasts and just in books, and I've been hearing about it for decades, but never really could find a, a good quality copy of it, and so they finally did a restoration on it. The director, uh, Philip Ridley, was behind this restoration, and he says that he's very pleased with what they've done to it, and it's definitely an interesting movie. One of the early appearances by Viggo Mortensen, of course, but it kind of reminds you of... Um, I guess Terrence Malick, if he had made a a film with horrific overtones, (laughs) this is what it reminds me of, because it has some of the feel of Days of Heaven and that sort of, you know, cinematography and and, and that kind of thing. Uh, But it's basically about this boy. The movie starts out with a very disturbing scene where these three boys are are taking frogs and they're blowing them up with air from an air compressor and then shooting them (laughs) Uh, with a slingshot so that they blood goes 
anybody that's walking past them gets covered in blood. And that's how the movie starts. <laughs> so you know wow. you're in for something when, when it starts with that. And it starts it the just, way uh, Magnolia ends. That's interesting. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it it kind of does, yeah. Um, but this was a, a, a big deal at the Cannes Film Festival in 1990. I think it made a pretty big splash there, but it's been just... Uh, but essentially the plot, I won't get into it too much, is that this boy, and it takes place in the 50s in Idaho, he believes that his next-door neighbor may be a vampire, and uh, she's played by Lindsay Duncan. And then his brother has been out in the... is in, has been in the military. He's played by Viggo Mortensen. He returns... And then you find out that he's been exposed to radiation poisoning and that he's suffering some after effects of that from uh, atom bomb tests and all that. So it's it's really interesting how it works into all these 50s paranoia themes into the movie. And, and like I said, the, the cinematography is really exquisite. So anyway, uh, for anybody who's not seen The Reflecting Skin, uh, and the quote here from the Los Angeles Times is, eerie, unsettling, and an amazing film. And I have to agree, it's pretty interesting for sure. Uh, but Film mm. Movement has issued this. Uh, it has a couple of bonus features, Angels and Atom Bombs, The Making of the Reflecting Skin, and has a commentary with the writer-director Philip Ridley, and a nice essay booklet. So they've done a really good job on this kind of forgotten film that uh, really deserves to be seen, I think, The Reflecting Skin. So, Who released that movie? Who released it originally? Yeah. Um, I'm not was, sure who uh, I would assume it was theatrical. It wasn't made for cable uh, or something. Yes, it was Miramax, I believe. I believe it was an early Miramax effort. I believe really? it was one of the ones that, uh, yeah, that Harvey Weinstein picked up early. And we're talking about around the time when they were doing things like Cinema Paradiso and The Grifters, that kind of thing. You know, so this was early on. This is, you know, a good four or five years before Pulp Fiction really put them on the map and made them a major player. But this was the early days of Miramax. But uh, yeah, I think it was a Miramax. So could you imagine? Uh, you mentioned it earlier. Could you imagine Terrence Malick making a horror film? <laughs> I know that would like, be great. Say, say uh, his version of the birds. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> uh, exactly. I would love to see yeah. that. That would be quite uh, uh, quite a sight to see, I'm sure. And and the reflection his version would be of, his version would be like ninety five percent the birds, five percent Tippy Hedren and Rod Taylor. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The 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 human interaction would be kept to a minimum, probably. But yeah. It, the, movie though if you haven't seen the reflecting skin and I, I don't want to build it up too much because uh, you know I don't want people to be disappointed but it, it if you're if you like and it's also has a Lynchian feel feel as well like a David Lynch kind of feel to the proceedings uh, there's definitely some influence there as well so if, if that's your if that's your scene man <laughs> we'll just say get the get the reflecting skin because it's worth it so um, mm. anyway uh, um, and we'll move right along to another title that's never been issued on DVD. This is another horror film, or never released in Blu-ray format, rather. It's been on DVD, but in subpar uh, editions, I should say. It's one of these movies that was in the public domain, 
And uh, it originally United Artists was supposed to pick this one up, and then they backed out at the last minute, and it fell into a distributor's hands. I think it was all Allied Artists, and a lot of their things went in, went into the public domain. It used to turn up in the uh, you could find it everywhere for ten dollars or less on VHS in the mid '80s when those kind of things were hard to find. But Alice, sweet Alice, is what I'm talking about. The uh, oh yeah, Alfred Souls, yeah, 1977 uh, horror film. I think the uh, film debut of Brooke Shields, I believe, and uh, you know it's about this. Uh, it's basically a religious themed proto slasher, is what it's billed as, and um, you know it does have some influences, uh, Hitchcockian influences. I think there's a little influence of Don't Look Now in there, Nick Rogue's film that we're big fans of. Uh, right. This is a nice, yeah. This is a nice addition here from Arrow. Uh, Arrow doesn't video, it have which, doesn't it have some kind of. Uh, I remember watching a few years ago. Doesn't it have some very Argento like uh, color schemes. Yeah, I'm yeah. thinking of a different movie. I mean, I understand the "Don't Look Now" thing because the red. I think uh, there's a red coat involved or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, but man, yeah, it, it's it's not a bad movie. No, it it's uh, yeah, it's it's. It's definitely interesting, and, and it looks better than ever uh, for people who have been just really disappointed with its lackluster video presentations. And, and that's pretty much what we've been forced to endure over the years. But, uh, yeah, it definitely has the Italian giallo film uh, influence as well as Hitchcock and the Nick Rogue and um and here's it's got a ton of extras the original screenplay the trailer and tv spots alternate opening titles uh the alternate oh. holy terror television cut because there was an alternate cut of this it's actually a little longer uh there's a deleted scene a new interview with actor Niles McMaster and there's some other memories from people who were involved in the film Dante Tomaselli uh, he's a filmmaker, cousin of Alfred Soule, he, uh, the director of the film. He talks about it. Uh, there's a thing on the locations. Uh, the director, Alfred Soule, actually gives his take on his remembrances of making the film, and there's commentary with Alfred Soule and, like I said, new restoration of the film and image gallery. So if you're a big fan of Alice, Sweet Alice, uh, well, the wait is over to finally get a decent edition of that. So... Speaking of Brooke Shields, I just watched a movie with her in it because I happened upon it on Amazon Streaming. And it, the name of the movie, well, one of the names, is Stalking Laura. Another name mm-hmm. is I Can Make You Love Me. It's got like three or four different names. So, mm-hmm. And it says Stalking, Stalking Laura, 4K Restored. I was like, 4K <laughs> Restored? Somebody, <laughs> somebody took the effort to restore this movie? I don't even know what the movie is, and it's Brooke Shields and Richard Thomas of Little House on the Prairie. Wow. And um, so I start playing it, and I'm like, oh, it's like a Fatal Attraction knockoff. This new girl starts at the Silicon Valley office, and Richard Thomas is the geeky electrician there and starts mm-hmm. to fantasize about her and fixate on her. And then like an hour in, it takes a really dark turn. This is like a 1993 TV movie. And uh, Richard Thomas, uh, frustrated that she won't go on a date with him, uh, goes into his office, uh, armed to the teeth, and starts blowing everybody away. 
Huh. And so, so then I look up this movie, and it's based on one of the first and worst mass shooting workplace incidents in history. Mm. Uh, it's like a real. It's like a real case. Here, I thought I was watching <laughs> some kind of exploitative lifetime movie of the week uh, quality thing, and it, in the end, it really is. But uh, yeah, but it was very serious, true story. Um, so, no, stalking no. Laura, War Four K restored, complete with a David Foster knockoff soundtrack where the the saxophone makes your ears bleed. <laughs> Well, that's very interesting. Uh, yeah, I wasn't aware of that, but um, now that it's on my radar, <laughs> well, yeah, we'll, we'll get into it with another Arrow video release, and this is William Friedkin's Cruising, the 1980 uh-huh. Cruising. <laughs> yeah, they've done a, a new um, high-definition transfer here, a, um, really looks good for this very controversial film. Of course, this is the one that Pacino will not talk about, uh, where he plays the cop who uh, is trying to solve a series of murders that involve gay men, so he has to get involved in that scene in order to figure out who the, the perpetrator is and uh, catch this sadistic serial killer and Paul Servino plays his boss, his police captain in the film, and has some interesting early appearances by people like Powers Booth. He he turns up in a uh, in an interesting scene in the movie where he explains to Al Pacino what kind of uh, handkerchief you want to wear in your back pocket, depending on what kind of action you're looking for at a bar. Um, <laughs> that's... That's that was uh, I found that to be a little interesting, but anyway, it does. Look, the transfer looks good. Uh, brand new 5.1 audio track that's supervised by William Bregan, and there's some of the extras that turned up on previous editions, the DVD edition. It has the uh, exorcising cruising archival featurette, looking at the controversy surrounding the film and the original trailer. Uh, there's the, yeah. ex, ex, exorcise, not exercising. Yep. It's not That's like the exercise that the that the uh, S and M bars. Uh, exorcising, yes, as in exorcist. Okay. Yeah, uh, yeah. We want to make that clear. The original theatrical trailer um, has archived audio commentary by William Friedkin again. And The History of Cruising, which is a featurette looking at the film, its origins, and production. So, And this mm. is a brand-new restoration from a 4K scan of the original negative uh, that's supervised and approved by William Friedkin. And when he supervises a film restoration, well, uh, you always want to check it out because you never know what you're going to... Lots of people have been tweeting about it. Yeah. Uh, they're pleased with it as well. It's an interesting movie. I am too. Uh, I, looked, I I I revisited it. I, I looked at the transfer. To me, it looked great. Um, you know, it is what it is. So, <laughs> what can you say? Yeah, but but what is it? I mean, I I think that's the the way it survived and captured interest for the past thirty nine year, however long it's been, because mm-hmm. um, you know, it started out under the cloak of one thing, and then it had a reassessment seven, eight years ago. Cause I remember when they did a first 
restoration of it through Warner Brothers, and they mm-hmm. screened it at the Castro Theater. Yeah. Um, and uh, to a lot of pr- praise, especially from uh, gay advocates. It's a thriller. It's uh, it's a thriller about identity, sexual identity, all this kind of stuff. But is it offensive? <laughs> is it is it okay to be offensive because the movie just exists to provoke? As much as I love William Freakin, I don't believe him when he says, "Oh, I had no idea what caused this kind of stir." Uh, I had, I didn't think much about the the homosexual community. I just thought it was an interesting uh, milieu to do a thr- do a thriller in, and I, hmm. I, I doubt that. I mean, I think he knew that he was fanning some flames when he oh, yeah. first decided to do this movie. I think it's disingenuous to say otherwise. But I will say that there are things in the movie that that work. Uh, that otherwise are technical flaws that actually make the movie work better than it should. I think mm-hmm. Pacino's discomfort, like what the hell movie did I sign on for? I think that works <laughs> yeah. in his character's favor. Uh, I think, you know, all the protests drowned out their their audio every day. So they had to dub almost the entire movie. And I think that that gives it a sense of disassociation some kind of dislocation uh mm-hmm. that that works in the movie's favor as well like it's not quite right like um so there are some things in the movie that I, I like a lot and i like the fact that he's toying with you by by not giving a de- definitive the kill, killer's identity changes all the time i mean there's yes. a killer going around but the person that plays the killer changes all the time I like that he he's just fucking with us, but uh, you know I do find that the movie might might be if offensive, but I don't know whether or not to be. I don't I don't know. Is it intentional or I don't know? You tell me. Not Adam. sure about. Uh, hey, I don't have all the answers either. Uh, I, I'm not sure what that is either. But I, I'm like you. I find it hard to believe that he did not realize what he was doing that he was being provocateur when he made this because i you know he he, he kind of had a, at that point in his at his career and life he had a history of uh you know kind of doing things like that i guess you would say uh you know getting people riled up and just kind of no holds barred i'm going to do things my way and get people talking and you know, yeah. that's he set, he way set he, out to make an incendiary movie. Yeah, and, that's a good uh, way know. to put it. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm but with you, you know, on that. some of the photography is great. I mean, I like oh, yeah. the, the the midnight blues and and uh, I, I like the um, the score, the actual score mm-hmm. in the film, which I think is who is that? Is that? Is that Nietzsche? It's not Nietzsche. It's, yeah, it I is. It's Nietzsche. Nietzsche right? Yeah, it's Nietzsche. Yes, it is. Yeah. Who? Uh, yeah. Who? The anniversary of his death is the day we're taping this. As a matter of fact, which he died um, 19 years ago today. So. I wonder if they played a saw at his funeral, <laughs> or or you know the sound you make when you when you put your finger fingertip on wine glasses and swirl it around. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You know. I love his scores. I love his scores. <clears throat> I do too. I um 
one thing I did not know about him, uh, and as a sidebar, was uh, uh, when I was looking up, uh, reading, doing a little reading on the anniversary of his death, on the anniversary of his passing, he was his ex-wife was Buffy Saint Marie, who uh, prominently one of her songs is featured in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the um, Oh. The chain, the the song where uh, Sharon Tate's driving around in her Volkswagen right. Beetle. Uh, I think it's, it's some the Circle Game. That's the name of it. I knew it would come back to me. But also, she uh, was a pretty pretty well renowned songwriter in the uh, in the late '60s, early '70s. But after they divorced, they got back together and teamed up and to write "Up Where We Belong," the song from Officer and a Gentleman. So they wrote that even though they were divorced at the time uh, they put the he with his musical prowess and she with her little lyrical prowess they came together and wrote that song and won an oscar which i thought was interesting wow. so yeah you know, and we'll, then he uh, and then he died and went up where he belonged <laughs> yes he did he did uh, another thing i didn't realize about him was that the actress Carrie Snodgrass was his girlfriend at one point, and she cheated on him. He found out about it and became so enraged he pistol whipped her and was arrested, and pistol whipped oh his son as well. Yeah, yes, <laughs> yes. So I was, wow. yeah, I read that. that was another piece tidbit. This happened uh, about eleven years before he passed, but yeah, wow, pretty. Pretty yeah. amazing stuff. So, uh, and he was, of course, very uh, big player in the Wrecking Crew, the the group of Los Angeles musicians, who you know contributed, played background to many. Uh, he played uh, on a bunch of the Rolling Stones records. So, yeah, he's an amazing guy, a very interesting guy, complicated man, but a uh, little little side Yeah, he doesn't sound like he, doesn't sound like much of a person, but he sure was a great musician. Oh yeah. That he was, and and there's God, how do you how do you his, live with yourself knowing you've pistol whipped a woman and your child? I know. A cat. <laughs> it's a well, it, yeah, that's pretty. Oh boy, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how you do. Yeah, apparently he was arrested and, and charged. It was it was a pretty serious. Uh, pre- and this was before he wrote Up Where We Belong. <laughs> Interesting to note the timeline there. Wow. He, he still con- he after that incident he contributed some of his most well remembered scores, Officer and a Gentleman and Starman, and some of those that was after that happened. So, a little piece of information about uh, Jack Nietzsche, whom comes up on the show quite a bit. So, okay, you just you just <laughs> killed my impression of him. <laughs> Sorry, dude. Uh, yeah, but I'll still listen uh, to his music. I mean, I I, I can. Oh, he was talented. You know. Yeah, he was very talented, and um, also co-wrote the hit "Needles and Pins" with Sonny Bono. They wrote that together, so that's another uh, thing he did too. So, yeah. uh, I have a. Uh, we typically don't talk about newer releases, but there's an anime film that's been getting some buzz that might have slipped through the cracks. It's called Penguin Highway, and uh, this is a Shout Factory release. Uh, Variety was touting it, saying if you see just one animated feature, anime feature this year, it ought to be Penguin Highway. And it's uh, it's about a, a kid who's in the fourth grade, wants to be a scientist, 
but um, she he lives his life like a scientist, and penguins start appearing in his sleepy suburb, and he vows to solve the mystery about why the penguins are there. And anyway, supposedly this is a charming little anime movie, and sometimes these things slip through the cracks, so I just want to mention Penguin Highway from Shout Factory, and we'll leave it at that. Um also have a couple of Billy Wilder titles have been issued by Kino. They've been doing a really good job with the Billy Wilder stuff, uh, both old and new. And one of the ones they did was A Foreign Affair from 1948, one of his earliest films. This one has Gene Arthur, Marlena Dietrich, and Raymond Bond. And I must admit I've not seen it. That's one of his that I have not seen, but... Uh, the front page is one of his later films from 1974. This is one of his many mm. pairings of Jack Lemmon, Walter Matthau, and pretty interesting supporting cast as well. you got Carol Burnett and Susan Sarandon and Vincent Gardenia and David Wayne, Alan Garfield. And, um, but you know, it's a remake of um, uh, His Girl Friday, and uh, I don't know, it's been done several times. But not bad, uh, not bad. I, Isn't I the front page? Uh, have you seen the trailer to the new Dolomite? Uh, My name is Dolomite. Uh, I have not. I've seen photos from it, but I haven't gotten around to seeing the trailer yet. Oh, watch that trailer! It's very funny. But the uh, there's a scene in there where where Dolomite and whoever his producer, or creative mm-hmm. partner, whoever are sitting in a movie theater. The um, Oh, I forget the movie theater that they that they restored for the movie um, last year. It's downtown. Anyway, they're they're watching the front page, and they're they're saying to themselves, "There are no black people in this, and it's not funny." And that's where Dolomite gets the idea to make his own movie. So I, I guess huh. that's taken from real life. I, I guess that's taken from real life, where Rudy Ray Moore actually went and saw the front page and thought I could do better. Interesting. Hmm. Yeah, I'll have to, yeah. I can't wait to see that movie anyway, so I'm super excited about that. I'm, I'm just glad that Eddie Murphy is, had had agreed to do that. He's perfect for that for that role, I think. Yeah. Uh, definitely. So the 1990 film An Angel at My Table, which is um, the Academy Award-winning filmmaker Jane Campion. It's one of her early films, and this was originally a miniseries on uh, New Zealand television, but it was edited into a feature film, a two-hour and 40-minute feature film, and it's about a um, a young woman who was misdiagnosed with schizophrenia, and it resulted in her electroshock therapy, and she narrowly escaped having a lobotomy as well, and it's a, a true story. Uh, I, but, um, you know, it's it was just a couple of years before she found really be really made a, a a name and a splash with the piano of course but right. um anyway uh this has and then uh in the cut kind of yeah kind of derailed her her feature yeah. film career it did yeah she's been doing television uh, series i think she did something with Nicole Kidman a year or two ago on television yeah, yeah. i can't remember what that was but yeah she did, they did work together again you're right this has a new uh, restoration of the um, the film, and it has audio commentary from 2005 featuring Campion and Carrie Fox, who plays the uh, the character in the film. And this is a uh, there's a short documentary from 2002 about the making of the film. There's six deleted scenes and um, an audio interview as well. So um, 
Yeah, hmm. and it's uh, this is the story of uh, Janet Frame, in case I didn't make that clear, who was New Zealand's most distinguished author. So anyway, An Angel at My Table is now available from Criterion in a special edition. And uh, hmm. here's one that you mentioned, I think. Oh, and the two Billy Wilder films we mentioned earlier, Front Page and A Foreign Affair, are Kino releases, by the way. You mentioned Charlie Says, I think, a while back. I noticed that's been hmm. issued did did you said that was pretty good? I think it's or really at least good. For... It's, okay. it's it's the best. It's the best Manson treat. Well, it's not about Manson. Manson's in it, but it's about the girls, and I think it's the best legitimate movie solely about that uh, mm-hmm. saga that's ever been made. Um, you know, keeping in mind that Once Upon a Time in America in Hollywood is just kind of tangentially related to the Manson stuff. And it's interesting too, as much as I, because I'm, as I made clear weeks ago, I actually unabashedly adore the ending of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. But mm-hmm. uh, this takes, this takes com- the completely different approach where it, it asks you to empathize with the, with the girls, uh, which I think is uh, pretty brave. But I think the movie is smart enough to um to 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 make that come off well because i it understands the process of indoctrination better than any movie i've i've seen about cults and that sort of thing yeah i'll have to i still uh, that's on my to do list i've got to make that happen that's a shout factory you need to watch release it, dude. for anybody i know it, I, I, it, it's it is on the list it is there as soon as i, I say that it's worthwhile why don't you just run out and get it that should be enough. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right, right. I was I was hoping I was going to get a review copy of that one. I was kind of waiting, and it never arrived. So, um, But it looks like I'm going to have to spring for it, but that's okay. We do that occasionally. That's what we do. Um, so The Gun and Betty Lou's Handbag from 1992, mm. that's when they were trying to make a star out of uh, Penelope Ann Miller. This has an early performance with Julianne Moore, and Alfred A. Woodard is in it, and Kathy Moriarty, and... Um, yeah, and I'm not sure what to say about this. I remember it not being too, uh, too, too, too good. Actually, it's, that uh, was a Miramax, wasn't it? Was that one of it, their? I think it was a Universal Touchstone. I'm going to say it was Touchstone. You're right. Yeah. You're right. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. They made a, a, they made a ton of these disposable comedies. Yeah. At that time. Sure did. This was one of them. Yeah, I do remember Penelope Ann Miller. Um, I wonder what she's up to now. But she, I remember after Carlito's Way, she talked to the press and talked about how she was in a relationship with Pacino, mm-hmm. and uh, I think I think he dumped her uh, right after that. He's like, yeah, don't talk about me. <laughs> yeah, he does. I, yeah, I think you're right. He doesn't take too kindly to that sort of thing. I don't believe. But uh, but anyway, you want what, you want this relationship to go big time. This relationship's going to die big time. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, 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 wow. I buried that cockroach. <laughs> anyway, uh, um, Gods and Monsters is a Lionsgate release. That's from 1998, mm. of course, written, co-written and directed by Bill Condon. And this is the... The story about the final days of James Whale, the director of Frankenstein, and 20 other films of the 30s and 40s. This was Ian McKellen and Brendan Fraser. 
Lynn Redgrave, Lolita Davidovich. There's another one who uh, yeah. made a splash yeah. in uh, the Palma film around that time and was has kind of fallen by the wayside. But, uh, anyway, yeah, I, but she she was good. she was very good, Lolita Davidovich. Okay. She had quite a fire to her. She's, I mean, she if you just consider how she held her own up against a very hammy uh, Paul Newman and Blaze. I mean, she was mm-hmm. a great, confident actress, I think. Yeah, I find it interesting that one of De Palma's children that he had with uh, Gail Ann Hurd was born around the time uh-huh. he made Raising Cain. His name Lolita. I thought that was funny. That's <laughs> 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 true. I, just, I don't know that there's any connection, but I just always thought it was kind of funny. And, um, anyway, so we'll move on to... Oh, Let's see, uh, August the 8th, Dr. Heckle and Mr. Hype with, uh, this is Oliver Reed. Uh, it says, horribly hilarious is what it says on the cover of the, <laughs> and this is one of those Yoram Globus and Menahem Golan uh, productions mm. written by Charles Griffith and Roger Corman and directed by Corman's frequent collaborator, Charles B. Griffith, who also, I believe, was responsible for Bucket of Blood. So it's interesting to mention because um, because of the Corman and Griffith colla- uh, connection there, and Oliver Reed and uh, Sonny Johnson is the co-star in this. She was the the girl, the young actress who played um, uh, Jennifer Beale's best friend in Flashdance, who died the very following year of an aneurysm. So her career was cut short, and she's in this. This is one of the only other films I I know of that really she was in as well. Yeah. <laughs> Did you hear that? Uh, that um, God, what's the? There was some movie that came out that um, had a Laura Branigan song in it a year or two ago, and it, I think it made the song popular again. It was either Gloria or um, Self Control or something. One of those hits. Hmm. Self Control. Uh, uh, the music video actually was directed by William Friedkin. Going back. Earlier, but anyway, um, yeah. uh, Laura Branigan, of course, died of an aneurysm many years ago, and so yeah, apparently right. the fa- the family just was inundated after this movie came out with requests for her to perform, oh, and they're gee. like, "No, she 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 died like a decade ago." Uh, <laughs> oh. But thanks for your interest. Yeah, God, but uh, oh. those are great songs, though. I always loved those songs. I did too. She was she was really the it girl there for a little bit uh, in like eighty three, eighty four, and just kind of fell by the wayside. And she actually had the original hit version of the Power of Love, how am I, which oh, and yeah, how, how am, am I supposed, supposed to, live? to live without you? Yeah, yes, exactly that one too. And Solitaire was always one of my favorites. That was a, that was a top five. Sing it for me. Oh, let's not do, let's not go there. <laughs> I, I don't have Laura Branigan's voice. <laughs> Uh, but uh yeah she was on a roll there for a little bit but yeah i remember that she was on the verge of a comeback i think and she um she had some tragedy in her life i think she had a husband that that died also very young unexpectedly Mm -hmm. and she uh she'd been i think the story went she was complaining of a headache and her brother uh, yeah they didn't think too much of it and her brother came in to check on her and she was just dead it's like that, so it's real. It's awful. She was only like forty-seven, I think, when she passed. So quite, quite young. Well, there's yeah. The um, 
I knew a guy when I when I managed the theater years ago. He he was a security officer at the theater because mm-hmm. uh, our theater had a lot of problems, and we needed officers there full time. But uh, he and I got relatively close. I mean, in terms of we'd spend all night, you know, BSing and stuff. Um, mm-hmm. And he was a retired uh, share, uh, uh, member of the sheriff's department, and he uh, did this on the side. And apparently, one uh, day he was um, gardening with his wife. And his wife just had an aneurysm, just died. I mean, a second. Oh. Just gone in a second. Uh, mm. Frightening. Frightening. Yeah. That is one of the scariest things. It really is. It's because, yeah, those things, they come on without a warning. And it's just it's just like you're just, you're just gone. It is, it is a very scary thing to contemplate. Exactly. Good night, everybody. <laughs> Bringing the show. Thanks for down. tuning in to another uplifting episode of Movie Geeks United. We'll end this show with "Up Where We Belong." <laughs> oh, complete with a with the audio from the original news report of Jack Nietzsche's arrest. <laughs> <laughs> oh wow! Uh, yeah. Well, we'll move on to August 13th, and we have uh, the couple of uh, the last remaining batch of Marvel films that had not been released to 4K. They finally made their way: Iron Man and Iron Man 2 and 3, and Thor, and uh, I guess, and Thor: The Dark World. That's the other one. Yeah, all those made their way to 4K. For anybody who uh, want to have a complete collection of the. Marvel films on 4K. There you go. The 1985 mm. film, The New Kids, with uh, Lori Laughlin, who was recently in the news, of course, James Spader and Eric Stoltz. This was directed by Sean Cunningham uh, of Friday the 13th fame. A brother and sister arrive in a small town hey. to help their relatives run an amusement park and find the towns terrorized by a local street gang. It's been issued by Mill Creek, and you can get it for less than ten bucks. Actually, if you're a, you can you, you can make fun of that movie all you want, but it put Lori Laughlin through college. I mean, just remember that. <laughs> That's good. That is good, dude. Sure is. Well, what about the 1982 film Vice Squad, starring? Um, oh, we had Gary Swanson and Wings Hauser is the villain in this, and Cecil Hubley and. Uh, actually has um, Nina Blackwood from MTV. She plays a victim in the film. Uh, it's about a a, a girl, uh, uh, Susan Hubley, is a prostitute supporting herself and her young daughter. And she's asked by a local detective and his vice squad to help him arrest a pimp played by Wings Hauser in a pretty, pretty good performance. I mean, he's not only chewing scenery, he's eating up the carpets and the drapes, too. But he's doing a pretty good job of it, and uh, so anyway, uh, it's one of these films that used to turn up on HBO in the early '80s, and it's fondly remembered by many people who came of age during that time. But Vice Squad is now available in a terrific special edition from Scream Factory. I think it's Scream Factory, or maybe it's. Hold on a second. I think it may be Shout Factory. Is who? Yeah, it's Scream Factory actually. Because it is kind of a horror film, I guess. But um, new audio commentary with the director, Gary Sherman, and new 4K scan of the film elements. A location featurette. This has 
this was filmed in Los Angeles uh, in you know ni- circa 1982, so it's really cool to to go back and and see the way things looked. It's a good time capsule for uh, those fans of Los Angeles, like myself and and you as well. We enjoy seeing what it looked like then, and this is a good. good I, way I, to know, do it. I know Hollywood Vice Squad, but that's a different movie. It is, yeah, it's a different movie. This was uh this is just Vice Squad. <laughs> but, so the nineteen seventy nine film The Black Hole has finally made its way to blue uh, sorry, Blu ray. This is a fortieth anniversary edition. This was a big deal for the Walt Disney Studios in nineteen seventy nine because they were going head to head. This they released this the same at the same time as Star Trek the Motion Picture. So this was their answer to that film and uh, I remember seeing this theatrically with my dad at the time. I was in fourth grade, and I was pretty pretty darn impressed with it, I must admit, although I've gone back and revisited it years in the years since, and it's not quite as good as I remember it being, but there's definitely some good right. stuff in there, and it has a terrific cast. Oh, I just love this cast. Uh, some of my favorite actors. It's got uh, Maximilian Schell, Anthony Perkins, Robert Forster, Ernest Borgnine, Roddy McDowell, Sam Bottoms, Tom McLaughlin. I mean, need I say more? Yvette Mimeo. So, like oh. I said, the special effects were pretty state-of-the-art at the time of its release, but uh, not a perfect film, but an interesting one nonetheless. And the 1981 film, Galaxy of Terror, has been issued with Edward Albert, Aaron Moran, Ray Walston, Robert England, Sid Haig, <laughs> That's uh, produced by Roger Corman. We were speaking of him earlier. It's like a who's who of who cares. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. If you ever wanted to see Joni from Happy Days in a horror film, well, Galaxy of Terror provides your your answer. And another Roger Corman film, Forbidden World, has been issued as well from 1982. And this one has Jesse Vint... And uh, Don Dunlap, not sure who that is, but anyway, this is uh both of these are steelbook releases from Scream Factory. So anyway, we'll move right along to Blackmail from Kino Lorber. That's a 1929 silent film directed by Alfred Hitchcock. Mm. And we have Murder from 1930, which is also a Hitchcock film. And uh, like I said, those are two of the pre-Hollywood Hitchcock films. Yeah, I watched a couple of those in the past few months. Yeah. Oh, gosh, I can't remember. I, um, I don't. I think I, I saw the Lodger, and then there was a really early sound movie that he did. I can't remember the name of it. It's with the, the, the they worked at a movie theater or something. There was a a bomb threat in the movie theater. I can't remember the name of that one, but. Um, I didn't watch Murder or what's the other one that's now available that you said was silent, 1929? Oh, that would be Blackmail. Blackmail. I don't think I saw that one. Yeah. Interesting. So both of those are Kino releases. And Synapse has released Django the Bastard from 1969, another one of those Django films that really doesn't have any connection to the original Django but uses the name Django to to sell it anyway. Uh, The John Ford film, Wagon Master, from 1950, uh, that has been issued by Warner Archive. This is 
a black and white uh, western that uh, features some of John Ford's supporting players that you saw. It doesn't have John Wayne or any of the uh, the heavy hitters, but it's interesting. He uses a lot of his uh, usual supporting cast and puts them in lead roles in this film. Ben Johnson, Joe Andrew, Harry Carey Jr., Ward Bond, and some of uh, those are a few. And um, anyway, it's basically about a group of outlaws who use a Morgan a Mormon wagon train as a hideout from a pursuing posse. And uh, so anyway, it's nice and short, 86 minutes, but it's also considered to be one of um, John Ford's favorite personal personal favorites of all of his films. Oh. The commentary is a special feature on here, and it's by Harry Carey Jr. and Peter Bogdanovich with John Ford. So there's some excerpts from... Bogdanovich's inter- archived interviews with John Ford that are included here in the audio commentary. So, anyway, there you go. And another Warner Archive release Man, is the great interviews Fire. there. If you've oh, yeah. seen any of those on YouTube, I don't oh, know yeah. what you're talking about. It's like one <laughs> one word answers for everything. <laughs> Monosyllabic, as they say. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Well, because you get the sense that Bogdanovich is coming at it from some kind of as as was his way from an academic perspective and john ford was like you know i i eat people like you for breakfast man you could tell he was he was not having it oh yeah that's um this is well it's funny you mentioned that kind of thing because i heard a very and this is uh a movie related as well because the David Crosby documentary is opening around the country in different places. We're getting it actually this coming Friday. I saw it about a month ago. It's pretty good. Uh, remember my name. And anyway, he was a couple of weeks ago. He was on the uh, the Hollywood Reporter podcast with yeah. uh, Scott Feinberg, and he basically walked off the podcast after 35 minutes. <laughs> yeah, and you listened to the you listened to that interview, didn't you? Did you listen I to did, the end of that yeah. interview? Man, oh, so uncomfortable. So uncomfortable, yeah. And uh, he he handled it well. Scott Feinberg did. I thought he handled it well. I'm not sure I would have handled it quite that well because he resorted to name calling. David Crosby did in the end, and he said, "Well, I I can see why people uh, why 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 people have had a little difficulty with you or something like that." (laughs) Yeah, Scott Feinberg really stood up for himself. yeah, and the kinds of the kinds of shows that he does, um, they really are cradle to the grave interviews, and uh, which can be tedious, especially when you're promoting a movie that is essentially already a cradle to grave <laughs> mm-hmm. yes. documentary of your life already. Uh, so tell me every single scene in this movie that we're about to see. Uh, yeah. You know, so I can understand his frustration, even though I'm sure he was told beforehand what the interview was. But, you know, he does so much press for this thing, and he's been around so long, he's probably, like, half listening to people when they tell him what he's about to walk into. But, yeah, uh, yeah Scott Feinberg, he, he stood up for himself, which mm-hmm. is good, good on him. It gave me a respect for him that I don't have usually listening to his podcast because I think they are kind of tedious. Yeah. Yeah. He's uh, so, some of them are better than others. I, I have heard a few, uh, a few of his that, that were actually pretty, pretty, pretty good, I think, but yeah, they can be, but yeah, I understood why, you know, where he was coming from because he was trying to fill people in on the gaps who had not maybe read his autobiography and were thinking about 
you know, on the fence of seeing his movie. So yeah, he was trying yeah. to trying to get there. But, but I just uh, you know, there's no spot there's no spontaneity because he is he is so prepared with every question yeah. he wants to ask. That's and true. you know exactly what if you know anything about these careers, you know exactly where the next question's gonna go. It's gonna go to the next project, the next beef with somebody in the industry, whatever mm-hmm. happens historically and there it's a each interview is very predictable. Yeah. And it reminds me of James Lipton. When James Lipton mm-hmm. would go <laughs> would go on stage with his guests and he'd have this big mountain of cards with questions and research and stuff. And he used to intimidate the hell out of people. And yet he asked the same question every time. Yes, what was it like to do this? What was it like to do that? You know, it was did you really need a card to ask that question? <laughs> yeah. That's true. That's true. And it's it's like yeah, you 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 can't help but wonder, you know, if if he couldn't be doing that by memory at this point. But yeah, exactly. Uh yeah, well, the Warner Archive That, that being has, said, I got to say Scott Feinberg, I mean, the and it's because he's he's associated with the Hollywood Reporter. His access uh-huh. is great. I mean, to have a podcast where you're interviewing Warren Beatty, for example. I mean, that's you just want to hear from Warren Beatty. That's fine. That's great. Oh yeah. Yeah, there was a rumor he was going that he was getting uh, Terrence Malick on there, but I don't think that materialized. Uh, I was hoping that 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 would would happen, but um, don't think it came through, unfortunately. Uh, Malick's got to get rid of this whole mystique thing around him. It's not working. Yeah, I mean, it, no, it, it, it worked. It worked when you disappeared for forty years and you you did a J.D. Salinger, but uh, it would not hurt anything to actually go out there in public and and speak about his work. Yeah, I think that would be great uh, because at this point, I mean, he's certainly not getting any younger. I mean, we'd like to hear some autobiographical anecdotes about making these movies. I would, at least, while we still have the opportunity. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, the mystique does nothing to add to his filmography anymore, is what I'm yeah. saying. So if it's, an, if it's an intentional thing where he's not wanting to go out to promote because he feels it would take away something from his films. No, I I don't think that's going to happen. Yeah, exactly. Well, uh, we have another Warner Archive release, Moonfleet, which was one of the final films for director Fritz Lang. Um, This one takes place in the 18th century Great Britain. Um, where It's about a boy who discovers that... uh, this uh, character named Jeremy Fox is both a former lover of his mother and the leader of a gang of smugglers, and a strange friendship grows as this unlikely pair is drawn into dangerous adventures. It has uh, it was produced by John Houseman, believe it or not, uh, <laughs> the, who later had a career as an actor and, of course, was a collaborator with Orson Welles, and has Stuart Granger and George Sanders and Vivica Lindfors. Um, filmed in Super Cinemascope 2.55, so it looks really good on on Blu-ray. It's it's okay, it's fine. Um, you know, it's probably it's not going to be measured up. It's not up there with uh, M or Metropolis as far as uh, the Fritz Lang works go. But you know what what would be so. <laughs> Anyway, uh, Undercover Brother from 2002 has been issued on Blu-ray from Universal and George. <laughs> we, we we go from a Fritz Lang to a Undercover Brother. 
We do. Yeah, we're all over the map here. And uh, George of the Jungle, how about that one? 1997, the uh, Brendan Fraser. Speaking of uh, earlier, we talked about gods and monsters, and here he is in George of the Jungle, and that was those were made just one year apart. It's, what diversity? The um, the Inland Sea is a Criterion release. It's a... Uh, I guess you'd describe it as a poetic travelogue about the explorations of the islands of Japan's inland sea from mm. filmmaker Lucille Cara. And, uh, you know, it looks supposedly the reviews I'm getting say that it looks really good. Uh, it's a brand new 4K scan and nice batch of extras there. So the inland sea is one of the criterion releases. White Line Fever from 1975 has been previously issued with a in a bundle with several other movies, but it's getting a separate release from Mill Creek Entertainment. This is Jan Michael Vincent, who passed away this year. As a um, he buys a truck, hopes to make enough money hauling produce to to uh, marry his girlfriend, and discovers the long haul business is run by racketeers. This is a really entertaining exploitation film. I'm going to tell you, it's a lot of fun, and uh, it's like I said, Jan Michael Vincent, Kate. What's uh, what's that? What's it called? White line, white line fever. Oh, it's white line fever. Okay. Okay. Yeah, it has uh, Jen Jen Michael, of course, uh, Kaylin's, Slim Pickens, L. Q. Jones, uh, Don Porter. Those are a few of the cast members. It's uh, it's just a lot of fun, and I would highly recommend. And you can get it for less than ten bucks. It's well worth it. White line fever from Mill Creek, as is a true believer. With James Woods and Robert Downey Jr., that's also available from um, Mill Creek as well for less than $10 and written by Wesley Strick and directed by Joseph Rubin. Joseph Rubin, yeah. Damn, I, I remember seeing that movie, o- the opening uh, weekend on Sunday, and I can't remember a damn thing about it. I, ah. But I do remember watching it. I remember, I, I remember all the circumstances of watching it. It was a last-minute kind of thing that my girlfriend and I at the time decided to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember where, where I was. I remember the day. I remember the time of day. I remember the theater. I remember where we sat. But if you asked me to tell you one single scene of that movie, I wouldn't be able to. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's funny. Well, we'll move along to this next one, uh, directed by Keith Gordon, uh, the actor-turned-director. Mm. And... This one stars Jennifer Connelly and Billy Crudup and Hal Holbrook, Ed Harris, Janet McTeer. Yeah. We're talking about Waking the Dead, which I love this movie. I'm going to tell you, this is a very powerful exploration of uh, dealing with grief. And um, it's uh, basically about a guy whose girlfriend was killed, and he just really can't get over it. And it's a very powerful, powerful movie. Uh, I, I found it to be anyway when I saw it. I haven't seen it lately. This is, it's been a while since I've seen it, so maybe I'd feel differently now. But at the time, I thought it packed quite an emotional wallop. But that's a universal. I think so too. I think I think it's the best movie that he directed. Uh, yeah. And I remember, I remember when I talked to him. I talked to him a little bit about Waking the Dead because I told him how much I I loved the movie. And uh, he's he's gone to direct a lot of television. He, he's a good he's a good director. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that's the start. And the other movie I know that he directed was well, he directed a few, but Mother Night with Nick Nolte. Yep. Uh, which is an interesting double feature with Night Mother, 
with Sissy Spacek and Anne Bancroft. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so watch Mother Night with Night Mother. Uh, yeah, but Waking the Dead, uh, I would definitely recommend that as well. Oh yeah, yeah. That's uh, I'm so glad they put that out on Blu-ray because it's uh, long overdue, and I'm not sure what the extras are here. I didn't get a review copy of it, but I'm probably gonna have to pick that one up myself. Uh, a couple other Universal releases. These are an interesting batch. The, the things they've chosen to put out: Radio Land Murders from 1994, produced by George Lucas, of course. Uh, Fierce Creatures from 1997, and the Leave It to Beaver feature film from 97 as well. So uh, it's quite interesting. Uh, Endless Love has been issued, the 1981 original. Believe it or not, this was never issued on DVD. This is the first time it's ever been, that it's ever been released really? on a disc-based format. So, yeah, just never... Directed by, we just he just passed away this year, Franco Zeffirelli. And we mm. talked about Scott Spencer, who wrote the uh, screen, co-wrote the screenplay for Waking the Dead. Well, he co-wrote the screenplay for this one as well. And we were talking uh, so about Brooke Shields earlier. Yeah, that's right. So there's all kinds of callbacks here. Exactly. So <laughs> yeah, it's, it's come on, Adam. Pretty amazing. Let's, let's do it. Let's do it right now on Endless Love. Come on. My <laughs> love, there's only you in my life. Everybody just everybody just tuned out. My first love. <laughs> Man, there's a good. Uh, they remade that duet, uh, yeah. Lionel Richie with Shania Twain, and it's a good. It's yeah. also a good version. It's well yeah. arranged. Mm-hmm. Now this is notable because this was Tom Cruise's debut film, I believe. So it is interesting to note he plays a an arsonist in this film, <laughs> which is uh, supposedly uh, this was you know he was on the precipice of entering the priesthood from what I've always been told or read, and that this was the he got this gig and this was the thing that changed his life, and we of course you know huh. what happened. So this was before wrist. Taps. It was yes, the year before. Huh. So nice. yeah. So it's uh it's interesting to note for the life changer it became for Tom Cruise. Um I think he may have auditioned as a lark, you know, just kind of as a goof or something and got the job and you know we we you know the rest of the story. He played an he played an arsonist at Endless Love and his career has been on fire ever since. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yes it has. <laughs> I, I, I'm sure Martin Hewitt, who got second billing in this film, wishes he had the career that Tom Cruise had. Yeah. Well, anyway, Shout Factory has chosen to issue this as a Shout Select, and it has a lot of extras there. Nice new transfer, but like I said, first time ever on disc, never on DVD. So it's out there now. And another Stakeout is another one of those Touchstone releases we were talking about that Kino's been pumping out and. That's another one of those disposable comedies, I guess. But, uh, maybe not quite as lightweight as some of the others, because our our buddy uh, John Badham directed it, so it has a little, yeah. a little panache because of his the first the first takeout. I mean, just just watch the first takeout. Yeah, if, if some if somebody out there hasn't seen the first takeout, it's it's a good Hollywood buddy entertainment. You know. Mm-hmm. Sure, it is. So I want to mention the 1998 animated film, and boy, have times changed. 
Can you imagine a time when uh, Woody Allen got to voice the uh, an animated character in a major release? Well, Ants was that film from 1998 <laughs> that's been issued by uh, Universal and DreamWorks. So, yeah. It's, uh, Is it the only time? Did Stallone did a, uh, a Woody Allen movie, didn't he? Wasn't he in Everything You Want to Know About Sex? He's in Bananas. Bananas. He, pl- he plays a mugger in Bananas. Yeah. Okay. So so Ants yeah. is the second time he and Woody Allen have worked together. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I guess that's true. Didn't think about that, but yeah. It's a good tri- good trivia question. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a box set of all the Leprechaun films for anybody who's clamoring for that. 1993 to 2014, the complete collection, the complete movie collection of Leprechaun. Uh, so, anyway, just wanted to bring that up. Oh, I love that Leprechaun and... in the Hood. I gotta tell you. <laughs> yeah, that's probably the, uh, the high mark of the series, right? The, uh, oh, the yeah, I love, I love that. I love that title song, man. I've, yeah, maybe we'll end the show with that. Man, it's a toss-up between Up Where We Belong and Leprechaun in the Hood for our, <laughs> for our song, song at the end of the show. Right, exactly. Wow. The the 2007 animated film featuring the voice of Jerry Seinfeld, B movie, and Spirit mm. from 2002. So those are a couple other animated films that were issued by Universal, and we'll move on. Spirit, the that's 1990. the one about the horse, the horse, right? Right. Yep, that's the one. And we'll move on to a few other things. Uh, the witches. The Nick. Speaking of Nick Rogue, we spoke of him earlier. His 1990 film, The Witches, which was the last project that Jim Henson worked on while he was alive, and because he was involved in some of the creature designs in that one. Uh, the 19, and that's like I said, Warner Archive released that, The Witches. The Harder They Come, which is a notoriously hard to find film that starred mm-hmm. the reggae singer Jimmy Cliff, has been issued by, as a part of the Shout Select line presented in uh, high definition for the first time with a new 4K scan. And uh, the filmmaker behind that film, Perry Hinzel, he tried to follow it up with a 1976 film called No Place Like Home. Well, uh, that film was unfinished for many years. He finally got the funds to finish it, and it's never been issued uh, on a home video format. Well, it's here's a bonus. It's, this is a three-disc set. It, called, it includes The Harder They Come, No Place Like Home, the follow-up film, and a disc, a third disc of special features, which is cutting room floor stuff and all that. So uh, if you're a fan of The Harder They Come, which is a gritty film about a, a reggae singer, or he wants to be a singer, and he turns to a life of crime to, in order to survive. And ironically, just as his career is uh, taking off, he gets involved in crime, and he's wanted for all these um uh, he he's notorious for all the wrong reasons so anyway uh it's it's an interesting movie and you know it was made in 1973 so anyway uh, magnificent obsession is a criterion release that's one of those Douglas Sirk films one of those big uh, technicolor soap with all the soap opera trimmings this one's starring Jane Wyman and Rock Hudson and Agnes Moorhead uh, Rock Hudson accidentally blinds Jane Wyman and feels responsible for this tragedy and wants to. He becomes a doctor in order to kind of compensate for it. It's it's uh, it's Douglas Sirk, but Douglas Sirk at his finest. Let's just say that. And it's a brand new transfer and all kinds of extras, uh, nice extras. Some of them carried over from the the uh, previous release, and and there's some new stuff. So 
I want to mention that. The Horror of Frankenstein is a uh, shout, uh, sorry, Scream Factory release. And um, this one stars Ralph Bates and Kate O'Mara. It's written and uh, produced and directed by, uh, pr- produced, co-written and directed by Jimmy Sangster, who was involved with a lot of these Hammer films. And this is a, a Hammer production, of course. But anyway, I uh, just wanted to mention that from, from Scream Factory with a nice batch of extras, new transfer. Uh, last year at Marion Bad has been issued by Kino um, from 1961, so I wanted to mention that. As as has these this pair of films, The 4D Man and Dinosaurus, which are two science fiction horror films that have been issued by Kino as well. And Kino has also issued Sweet Charity, the Bob Fosse film of 1969. I think the only holdout now with the release of Sweet Charity on Blu-ray, the only holdout would be Star 80, which we keep hoping for. But everything else has been released in uh, high definition as far as the Bob Fosse catalog goes. And this one has two different cuts of the film. So for anybody who's interested, but uh, they've done a... A pretty good job, lots of extras, and it's a two-disc two disc set. So anybody who is interested in owning Bob Fosse's film directorial debut, it's out there from Kino. It's like they want to forget that Bob Fosse directed Star 80. I, it's, some, it's weird. Yeah, I mean, even even right. the, uh, the Fosse-Vernon uh, <clears throat> TV miniseries that came out earlier this year, which mm-hmm. I thought was great, uh, and it's directed like a, the whole thing is directed like a Bob Fosse showstopper. Mm-hmm. There are all mm-hmm. these sequences, these dramatic sequences that uh, play like a six hour version of all that jazz or something. But yeah. uh, they completely skip over Star 80. It's like he never even directed it. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty amazing. You're right. They they sure do. Exactly. Yeah, it's kind of, and that's kind of sad. I agree because that's it's. I rewatched it recently and it still packs a wallop. What can I say? Yeah. But um, yeah. So anyway, a couple other things here. Babylon is another film that is very similar. Babylon, yeah. Yeah, the, from to the harder they fall. Yeah, exactly. That's what I was going to say. Yeah, and this has been hard to find. It had a, um, a world premiere at the Cannes Film, film Festival in 1980, but went unreleased in the U.S for years for being too controversial and likely to likely to incite racial tension. But um it follows young yeah, that, reggae that's DJ. Been, uh, I'm sorry man, that's yeah. been a a difficult another difficult to track down title too. And I just past month or so I just sold uh the soundtrack to that. Uh I had I had a sealed copy of it that I sold. And I knew, like, I found it, and it was five, like five dollars, and it was sealed. And I said, "Oh shit, I could sell this for like fifty dollars." And, yeah. and I did. Like the the next day, I sold it for ten times what I paid for it. <laughs> wow, interesting. Yeah, this is a. Uh, it's about a reggae DJ who's uh, pursuing musical ambitions while battling fiercely against racism and xenophobia of his employers and his neighbors and all that. So anyway, it's been issued Bikino with um, you know lots of nice bonus features. So anybody who's interested in Babylon, a controversial film that's very similar thematically to, to The Harder They Come, that would definitely make a, a good uh, double feature for sure. And a couple of Twilight Time releases, Wild in the Country, one of Elvis's the only time Elvis ever worked on a film that was scripted by Clifford Oditz, 
the playwright. <laughs> it's mm. worth noting for that, if nothing else. Uh, this is, uh, it has some, uh, just the, the extras, on, only extras are an isolated musical track and the original theatrical trailer, but it does have an interesting cast. Elvis, of course, Hope Lang, uh, Tuesday Whale, Millie Perkins. So, uh, Wild in the Country and The President's Lady is the other Twilight Time release. That's, um, that stars Charlton Heston as President Andrew Jackson, uh, and his, uh, as he's unhappily married to, uh, Susan Hayward, his wife in the film. And, um, mm. so, anyway, it's, uh, the, the story of, uh, Char- of Andrew Jackson with, uh, Charlton Heston and Susan Hayward playing those, the husband and wife there. From 1953, there's an isolated music track in the uh, the President's Lady radio show, which is a vintage radio show from the time. So anyway, I uh, wanted to mention those Twilight Time releases. And those are the only ones of Twilight Time this month. And then, um, moving right along, we're about to wrap up things here. There's a couple of things. Uh, Stand By Me has been released in 4K. Uh, as has Apocalypse Now again <coughs> with this new cut. The final that cut. Was, uh, the final cut, uh, along with the original cut, it's been issued uh, as well. Right. And the uh, the, and the, the documentary is the re- is the Redux there too? Are all three I of them on so. there? I think so. Yeah, I think all three of them are there, along with the uh, the George Hickenlooper um, documentary. Is there a noticeable um, bump from when you see a 4K from a Blu-ray? Is there a noticeable bump? It depends. I I did notice on the Grease 4K that was released last year. I did notice that there was a very noticeable bump. But there's some of them that I've that I've picked up that that I really didn't notice that big of a big of a difference. But but Grease was definitely yeah. one that stood out. Uh, another one that stood out for me was the uh, Peter Jackson's King Kong. That looked really really uh, really spectacular as well. So occasionally you'll get one that that definitely. It's it's a jump in quality, so. Uh, well, I saw the the I saw the theatrical uh, saw Apocalypse Now last weekend in uh, in the theaters, mm-hmm. the final cut, because I'd yeah. never seen it in theaters before. And man, it was great to see it on the big screen. And it, oh, I bet. It it holds such a spell over you for the longest time, and then damn it, that French plantation scene comes on, and I'm one of those guys. I, I know there are different camps on this. But get rid of the French plantation scene. It, it it doesn't serve the flow of the narrative at all. It's mm-hmm. literally like, uh, I, I understand thematically it's like going back in time. Mm-hmm. Um, but we've already made seven or eight stops on this journey. It's one set piece too many. It's overly long. It's too didactic because the whole thing is kind of, even his narration, it's 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 kind of moralistic and it's mythic, and it deepens your investment in this mythical journey he's taking to understand himself while trying to understand Kurtz. And you're wrapped up in that that whole the spell of that and the the colors and the and and the lights and the smoke flares and all this kind of stuff, the weird shit. Um, mm-hmm. And then you stop for this like. 15, 20 minute sequence at a French plantation when you're ready for him to make, to, to reach his destination already. And it doesn't do anything 
for the movie. It needs to remain an extra that you could pull up in a deleted scenes on a Blu-ray. It doesn't need to be in the movie. And I think also yeah. he cut he cut some of Brando's stuff at the end, and Brando feels a little shortchanged at the end. And I think he had a lot more of it in Redux. Um, mm-hmm. But still, overall, just an absolutely stunning movie. And stunning mostly, of course, because this was uh, Coppola was such a legendary talent, and every, all of his struggles are in that movie. You could feel them in the movie, and him mm-hmm. him struggling with what's this movie about? How am I going to end it? How the fuck am I going to shoot this? How are we going to finish oh, yeah. this? <laughs> I mean, the whole thing is the whole thing is an odyssey unto itself, but uh, yeah, it's just still a stunning movie, and I would get get the final cut. Yeah, I didn't. Uh, I I did not get to see the uh, see it on the big screen. I I was mistakenly thinking it was going to be playing for another weekend, and I I just I was planning on going this weekend, but it was it was too much, too little, too late, and I I missed it. So yeah, and I really hate that I did. Du- Duval really came through this last time I watched uh-huh. it. Man, what a what a titanic performance. Jesus. I mean, he is just... I love how he just... He stands so stoically while bombs are dropping right behind his, his shoulder. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, he's just great in that movie. And because you, consider, you, you consider Duvall like coming from The Godfather. Uh, and I think I talked to you about this earlier, a private conversation, uh-huh. where he's like a... Ba- almost a... I mean, awesome in The Godfather, but a background player. And Totally mm-hmm. different apocalypse now. And the fact that he makes that performance totally different from his great Santini performance is also a miracle, too. Uh, just great yeah. work all around. Yeah, wasn't there a story, too, about when they were shooting that sequence that he originally he wasn't supposed to have as many helicopters in the background, and then he he said, okay, we've, we've shown one helicopter. We can't not have helicopters in every single shot that he's in at this point for, in the base. And so we got to have helicopters in every single shot. Yeah, because that's, we've uh, set that's it a, up. Story, uh, a story Tarantino told in the recent podcast. He said that they, um, because Tarantino was asked about putting a dog in every shot of the Spawn Ranch sequence. And he yeah. said, yeah, it was kind of like, kind of like the helicopters in Apocalypse Now because Coppola said, if we don't have helicopters in every sequence in in every shot in the sequence it's going to feel inert so mm-hmm. uh the action scenes on the ground we need the depth of the helicopters up in the sky continuing to fight the battle to get to give this thing depth or else yeah. it feels very uh stagnant so it was an interesting mm-hmm. And their problem with the helicopters, of course, is that they, they weren't guaranteed to hang around for very long because they were fighting a guerrilla war. So they would yeah. just fly away in the middle of a scene. Exactly, yeah. It's pretty amazing what he pulled off when you think about it, that's for sure. Well, uh, another Warner Archive release, two more actually, uh, Betty Davis in Jezebel from 1938. That's been issued, yeah. as has the original 1983 miniseries V. That uh, launched oh. a yeah. This is the original. Actually, it says miniseries, but it's actually a television film. It was a two-part TV movie that ran a total of I think three hours and ten minutes. But this is uh, written and directed by Kenneth Johnson, who 
did the Incredible Hulk television show and the Bionic Woman, and um, later on he did Alien Nation. <coughs> it's pretty well done, and the, and I think for a TV movie, it's it, it holds up now. When they went on to do the later subsequent television series and the and the six hour miniseries, uh, the quality kind of uh, because Kenneth Johnson wasn't involved in those. I think the quality kind of fell off a, a little as it yeah. went on, but um, but yeah, the original stands up. It's it's pretty pretty well. Pretty well done, and uh, so Warner Archive has yeah. again. They've been doing some of these TV movies. We've talked about it, and I hope they'll get around to Helter Skelter and Guy in a Tragedy. But they've done the the original. Yeah, they uh, those those two titles. I definitely want to see. But I do remember there's a big demand for the original V, um, and I remember what a big deal that was when it first aired on TV. I mean, I remember the oh, yeah. teasers. And I, I remember being excited about seeing it, and uh, my friend Rick and I we still talk about V. Mhm. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty, pretty, uh, pretty, uh, like I said, pretty astounding accomplishment for its time, I think. And uh, so anyway, uh, yeah, the Coker trilogy is a trilogy of films from Abbas Karastami from 1987 to 1984. These are Criterion box set of the, those those films. And The Flavor of Green Tea Over Rice is a 1952 film by Ozu. And that's another Criterion release that came out this month. So I wanted to mention those. And Flesh Gordon, not Flash Gordon, Flesh Gordon from 1974. This was the X-rated uh, Blu-ray, uh, the, uh, the X-rated parody of Flash Gordon, uh, which is Pretty pretty funny in its own way. Uh, it has amazing animated uh, creatures by Dave Allen. I, uh, the the plot of the film is that they have to the Earth is being threatened by this sex ray, which is being uh, beamed to us from another planet, and it makes everybody horny. And so they uh, it's up to Flesh Gordon to penetrate the planet's defenses and beat Emperor <laughs> Wang into submission. And uh, when he gets there, there's these animated creatures. They call them the Penisauruses, and you can imagine what they look like. And he has to do battle with them. And uh, it's uh, it's quite an interesting movie if you've not seen it. So, <laughs> um, and Craig T. Nelson is in this, by the way. Early appearance by Craig T. Nelson. Really? So yeah, there was a sequel, Flesh Gordon and the Cosmic Cheerleaders, but it didn't really. Uh, that didn't really. Uh, it's just not nearly as good. But uh, this is from uh, from him. I can't tell you how long I've been waiting to see Craig T. Nelson in a porn film. I mean, that's been <laughs> on my bucket list. Well, now your wish has been granted. What can I tell you? And so. Anyway, we'll we'll move along real quickly. Day of the Outlaw from 1959 is another Kino release. This one stars Robert Ryan, Burl Ives, and Tina Louise. Yes, Ginger from Gilligan's Island, but this was about five years before. And it's a it's a western. It's uh, cowboys and ranchers have to put their differences aside when a gang of outlaws decide to spend the night in a little western town. It's directed by Andre de Toth, who famously directed The House of Wax with Vincent Price. Yeah. And then we have The Leech Woman from 1960. This is a Shout Factory release. And this, uh, you know, one of those typical, uh, this this is about a um, oh, an endo, de, endocrinologist in a dysfunctional marriage who journeys to Africa seeking a drug that will restore youth and comes across The Leech Woman in the process. So anyway, mm. uh, we ha- we have the 1983 this film com- Love that Letters. Have commentary from uh, commentary from William Friedkin on it. 
<laughs> it might. One of those other ones, I think, uh, had it last month. I can't remember which one it yeah. was. But yeah, Love Letters from 1983, which is uh, one of the lesser-known Jamie Lee Curtis films. This is directed by Amy Holden Jones and uh, also has James Keach and Amy Madigan. It's about a young radio personality who discovers she had been having a her mom had been having a love affair for 15 years and finds herself recreating her mother's romance by getting involved with a married man. So anyway, um, like I said, Jamie Lee Curtis, 1983, Love Letters. And Fear in the Night is a 1972 uh, horror film starring Judy... Uh, I'm sorry, it's uh, Joan Collins and Judy Geeson. Yes, Ralph Bates, Peter Cushing. Um, yeah, I think it's one of those horror, uh, those Hammer films. Also known as Honeymoon of Fear, but it's a Shout Factory release from 1972. Fear in the Night. And the 1975 film Brother, Can You Spare a Dime has been issued from BCI, which is a nostalgic look back at the Great Depression with with contemporary archival footage and film clips featuring James Cagney as an American everyman. So anyway, it's kind of a documentary, I guess you would call it. And um, so, uh, let's see. We're getting right down to the to the last couple of titles here. Get out your handkerchiefs from 1976. That's from Cohen Media Group, starring Gerard Depardieu. That's pretty well. Uh, uh, that's pretty well reviewed. And uh, the original 1997 version of Insomnia has been issued from, from Criterion, with star- starring Stellan Skarsgård. Uh, later, of course, remade with Al Pacino by uh, Christopher Nolan and Robin Williams also co-starring in the remake. And then we have, last but not least, Man Without a Star. This is from Kino and uh, directed by King Vidor and starring Kirk Douglas, Gene Crane, and William Campbell. And it's uh, another Western from 1955. The place where I learned my thing From the Emerald Isle to your place in the hood I'm the man of green, come to do no good Left in the hood, come to do no good Left in the hood, come to do no good Blunt is dope, this place is hype There's a lass, she's just my type I hate to resort so soon to money Haven't been late so long, it's heavy I'm so bad, I'm good I'll show you what to do, so lend an ear. Don't worry, little lassie, you've got nothing to fear. Sit with the lad who's lean and green, and let me show you why I'm a love machine. Come to do no good. I'm a wee green guy who's new to town. Show me what you do when you get down. I'll go up, you go down. We'll call C your love three. Left in the hood, come to do no good. Left in the hood, when we're bad, we're good. Of more to your front door. Better turn up the lights and pray some more. We're gonna party through the night until the door. Then you and I are gonna get it on. Left in the hood, come to do no good. Left in the hood, come to do no good. 
Let the hood come to do no good. Let the hood come to do no good. 